Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Thanks for joining another episode of the Foundation Podcast. This is Kevin Roberts, your host. With us this week is Dr. Derek Cohen, longtime Texas Public Policy Foundation staffer and now director of the Center for Effective Justice. Derek, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Kevin. You know, recently, in the last several days, there was this huge event at the White House. It happened to be the same day as a tragedy here in Texas, and that's the Santa Fe school shooting. So some of that fittingly got lost in the news. But what happened at the White House on that day regarding criminal justice reform was historic. Tell us about it. Certainly. Well, the day started off at 8.30, and we had a, a small, I'd say a small panel. Uh, this sounds like a fairy tale, Derek. <laughs> the day started off at 8.30 at this little house called the White House. So there we were. <laughs> but we had a small panel in the morning uh, moderated by Brooke Rollins with Governors Fallon and Martinez uh, from Oklahoma and New Mexico, respectively, and also the Attorneys General from uh, Michigan and Indiana. And the purpose of this panel was to talk about states that have applied some sort of criminal justice reform, some that looks like uh, that is, which is being debated in Congress right now, some of which being far more aggressive than that uh, in the case of Oklahoma. So pardon the interruption. At the White House, in the Trump administration, a bunch of conservatives talking about criminal justice reform. Exactly. A bunch of conservatives talking about criminal justice reform because we see leadership both coming from the administration and from conservatives across the country on the issue. And federal action through congressional legislation, obviously, that started with an idea at the state level. Yes, an idea that, at least on the conservative side, uh, came from Texas. Now, I do have to admit in full disclosure, in 2003, similar reforms happened in Connecticut, but I thought that was a good pilot project for the, the main, uh, main attraction. You know, sometimes things start in Connecticut, but then Texas perfects them. Uh, yes. So we'll, we'll come back, back to that in a moment. But yes. you were giving us your fairy tale story, so please continue. <laughs> yes, yes. In that panel, uh, on that panel, they discussed... Uh, what they have done in the states, the advantages uh, that were conferred upon the states for, for taking those actions, and what can be done moving forward. I and mean, this included everything from, you know, in New Mexico, there was civil asset forfeiture reform, very aggressive civil asset forfeiture reform, uh, actually requiring a conviction for uh, the taking of personal property uh, in a nexus with a crime. Uh, in uh, Oklahoma, it was a very broad uh, criminal justice reform, th dealing with things like uh, the 85% rule, safety valves, uh, you know, basically looking at how we populate our prisons to begin with and prioritizing that space in our prisons for those that would harm the community and taking those who would not harm the community and still punishing them, but doing so in a way that is more efficient and more effective. Sure. So at this event at the White House, all fairy tale kidding aside, mm -hmm. the run of show culminated with the president making some remarks. And, and, and I quote him, Prison reform is an issue that unites people from across our political spectrum. It's an amazing thing. That's a wonderful President Trump phrase. Our whole nation benefits if former inmates are able to reenter our society as productive, law-abiding citizens. What he was talking about was one part of the summit, which was what we call a reentry program. Explain that for the listener who not only may not know what that means, but might be a little skeptical about helping prisoners. Certainly, certainly. And so 
this has been dubbed, this effort, both by the White House and in Congress, has been dubbed prison reform. And so it essentially deals with once we have adjudicated an individual and beyond. So once someone's adjudicated, we already know how long For we For those have. of us from the South, what does adjudicated mean? <laughs> uh, they've, they've already been uh, sentenced, and we know on paper uh, roughly how long that they will, uh, I'd say, uh, be, in our, be in our care. Got it. Okay, um, thanks. To, to be diplomatic about it. Um, but once, uh, once we have that number, uh, that idea in mind, that length of time in mind, how are we spending that time? Now, the, the orthodoxy prior to was simply one of warehousing. You know, we have, we have folks on hand, and we are going to release them at a certain date, and that's pretty much the long and the short of it. Over the last, I'd say, decade or so, probably extending about two decades in certain localities, but a decade in the federal system or so, We've really looked at, okay, well, we're warehousing them. What are we doing while we're warehousing them? You know, these people, 95% of which are going to be back on our streets, are going to be living next door to you and me. What are we doing to make sure that they don't reoffend, that they don't end up back in that facility to begin with or any other facility? And we basically look at the research on that. And the research shows that there are several things that we can do while we have them to affect those better outcomes. Now, this is where we radically diverge from the left on this, the left says, oh, give them a job, give them housing. You know, basically, let's work on some of the terms of supervision and make sure they're, uh, I wouldn't even say less onerous, let's make sure they don't even exist, even if there's a valid public safety component to that. What we say is, let's get the government out of the way. Let's get uh, the government-created criminal record. Once that's passed, being uh, predictive of someone's future offending, let's look at maybe reducing the impact that it can have. Let's look at indemnifying landlords, of indemnifying employers uh, who want to hire these people. You know, a survey just came out by the Society of Human Resource Management showing employers want to hire ex-offenders, especially those who have been rehabilitated because they turn out to be some of the best employees that they have. The only problem is they face per se liability for negligence if they do in some states. That was something we fixed in Texas in 2013 and 2015. And so getting the government out of the way is the way as opposed to having any sort of affirmative handouts to these folks. Now, that's just one element of reentry. The other element being jobs training. You know, some folks basically are unemployable, not through any personal fault, but just because they haven't learned any skills through which they could be employable. Now, the federal government spends a lot of money on job training. A lot of that money goes, uh, you know, basically unused because it's being applied in the wrong place. We, we just send it to the states um, and say, train people for jobs. When in fact, a whole cohort of individuals, that 95% I spoke of, is going to be released back into the states with no such training and oftentimes with no eligibility for such training. Mm -hmm. And those are the folks that really could take advantage of that training, divert from that criminal path, and get on a path to being a productive citizen as opposed to a, a liability, whether public safety-wise or uh, on, you know, on the government dole. Sure. So if, if I were to summarize from my layman's perspective... I would say that the human condition is such that we all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Some people make mistakes that means that they become first-time nonviolent offenders, mm -hmm. which would be the vast majority of the prison population. And the vast majority of them will serve their prison term in completion, leave prison. And what we've been doing is building too many prisons, spending too many government resources only to over to continue to criminalize those first-time nonviolent offenders to come out and repeat their offenses. Right. I would even throw in, when it comes to that 95%, that's just not the low-risk people. And so that's why having uh, not only the training I spoke of, but also criminogenic rehabilitation. Criminogenic rehabilitation. 
you know what I'm going to ask. Define that. Way ahead of you. Basically, <laughs> basically the, the factors impl- are in, inherent in somebody that lead to offending. Now, I'm gonna, when we get into a little bit into uh, some of the history, I'll talk a little bit more about this. But we've generally came up with this theory of criminology that it's ecological, you know. I'm, I commit crime because I don't have advantage, because I have social strain, I have all that stuff. All these external factors cause me to commit crime. That's, well, not only is that antithetical to conservatism, it really, it's, it doesn't match with, criminological theory doesn't match with other criminological theories. And so what this more recent understanding of criminogenic risk factors is, things like antisocial peers, antisocial personality traits, um, uh, antisocial uh, cognitions. These are things that lead to criminality. You know, I am going to reoffend because I don't. You know, I'm going to rob Kevin because I don't see Kevin as a human. I'm going to offend against community because you know what? I've had it so bad, so I don't care what anyone else. Is. These are antisocial cognitions. They're not things that people are thrusting upon you. These are things that exist within you, and they can be changed. And that is something that is being addressed. A- so where does this reentry program that was the focus of the last part of the summit last Friday go? What, what are the next steps for that? Well, there, there's, there's definitely two steps. I, I would say there's there are three steps. Hold. There's what's going on in Congress right now, and that is via the, the, first, chan- uh, the first Step Act uh, by Doug Collins of Virginia. I'm sorry, Doug Collins of Georgia. And what he is advocating for is let's make sure that we are appropriately triaging the use of good time credits so that which will put somebody in home confinement or a halfway house. Let's not put dangerous people on there. Let's put the people that have earned time off on there. In other words, the people that have completed these recidivism reducing programs, recidivism being the likelihood of somebody reoffending. I just, I just figured I'd throw it out there. Um, but these programs that reduce the likelihood of recidivism, let that count as good credit towards earning home confinement or halfway house confinement. Still confinement, but one or the other. And basically taking the more violent folks, still allowing the programming available to the higher risk folks who are going to be out, but not allowing them to take any sort of uh, benefit of an accelerated um, pathway to release. And I don't want to say earlier release. I say an accelerated pathway to release because you're still going to be confined in one way, shape, or form. You're just not going to be, you know, behind bars in that similar way. And that's another thing that works. It's segueing back into the community and then of just rocketing somebody out the door. And then the second point of that would be what we are, uh, what we're doing, uh, known as Safe Streets Second Chances here, or or S3C, which is a a partnership between uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Coke Industries. Uh, Florida State University, and several other partners, what we are working on is looking at the policies in the states that drive successful reentry programs and seeing if we can evangelize that in the states that don't necessarily have them. Now, that actually is backed up by the third component, the third component being a research component run by Dr. Carrie Pettis-Davis out of Florida State, where we basically are testing those policies in an academic environment. We are actually testing our reentry policies to make sure what we're advocating for is not, oh, well, one study says, another study says. Well, we have a vast swath of evidence coming out of four states, and we're looking to roll this out in all four. The primary thrust of the latter two, developing in a comprehensive reentry plan as soon as somebody arrives in the facility. So once someone arrives in the facility, we know what are their criminogenic risks and needs. In other words, those factors we discussed earlier. What are the uh, what, what are the ways of, of addressing them, of, of reducing them? And two, 
basically plugging them into some form of community support. The best way of doing that is some sort of prison-based ministry, but it also doesn't necessarily, there could be secular, secular alternatives for that, like the Prison Entrepreneurship Program or Goodwill, uh, but basically making sure that they're connecting to there instead of just flowing and being left on their own, and just when they get released, as 95% of them do, just hoping everything works out. Sure. So am I hearing from you that the people who will be providing the reentry services are private providers and not the government? Exactly. And, and there are... And I would say the more denser municipalities, there are government providers, but even they tend to subcontract. And at the end of the day, it's basically finding these 501c3s, making sure they're plugged into the folks who need, who know that they're, they're needed and the folks who need them. Because right now, we might be distributing a list. And I say we, I mean our general correction system might be distributing a list of these groups. But there's no, in, there's no information as whether or not this particular offender needs this particular service, or even worse, that they're going to even call them once they get out. So having that comprehensive individualized reentry plan is the goal of S3C. Sure. So the first next step is the First Step Act. <laughs> and that passed the U.S. House, correct. correct? Has it passed the Senate? No, no. It just passed the House uh, on Wednesday of this week. Okay, so what are the prospects for his passage in or the other chamber? Uh, I, I would say the prospects are. I would say the prospects are, are very bright. If you look at the margin from committee and you look at the margin from the floor, they were staggering, far beyond what I, I would say optimistic projections even would be. You know, it came out of committee twenty-five to five, and it came out. It came off the floor three hundred and sixty to fifty-nine. Um, this was a predominantly uh, uh, conservative push. The uh, liberals and progressives who voted, uh, who voted nay on this issue tended to do so because it, quote unquote, doesn't go far enough. I mean, of, of course, uh, Representative Collins even titled it the First Step Act and has, and has made commitments to uh, revisiting that which was left on the table, but using this as a show of how this process can be you know, affected. And then in the Senate, I think we have uh, a, a similar landscape. I, I think that many of the, the center-right and conservatives in the Senate really see the value of fixing this because the status quo, the status quo is letting people out unsafely. This, the, the proposal is to let people out as they're coming out anyway, but doing so in a more safe manner. And that really resonates with conservative center-right folks. But again, there's a, a coalition in the Senate of, of liberals and progressives who the perfect is the enemy of the good. Sure. So that explanation about Representative Collins' approach to his legislation reminds me of how truly bipartisan this entire criminal justice reform effort has been. We started with this specific episode at the White House several days ago on purpose so that we wouldn't bore our listeners to death regarding the history of criminal justice reform. But in fact, it's very interesting, especially for people who are fascinated by what I call head fakes in public policy. And this has been one of the great head fakes in public policy in which conservatives have taken the lead on criminal justice reform. For those of us who study the history of conservatism, it makes perfect sense because we're motivated by the dignity of the human person and, and what could give the human person more dignity than if they're a first time nonviolent offender and the government is spending as many resources or at least as many resources on rehabilitating them so that they come out and be wonderful citizens as they do on the, the justice side of it, of incarcerating them. But for a lot of our listeners, 
I'm sure that that's a little bit of a foreign language because I can remember being conservative 10 years ago and certainly still in the camp of locking people away and throwing away the key. A lot of people, including national signatories on this issue, so people who support this, have sort of gone full circle, and, and not the least of which would probably be President Trump himself. So why don't you, for the sake of our listeners, just give us a brief overview of how what we call right on crime has evolved. Well, I would say that's definitely a mouthful, and I, I do appreciate, you know, the lock them up and throw away the key is not in and of itself an, an invalid philosophy or invalid strategy. Certainly for the violent offenders, right? Certainly. The only problem is, of course, that eventually you run out of keys. <laughs> and... Um, so, so the history of criminal justice and conservative criminal justice reform basically goes back to the 1960s, so when we actually have good nation, national state-specific stats on all this. Every state had an increase in crime. Every state. Starting in the 60s. In the 60s. It, actually, closer to, closer to the end of World War II, just not a lot of that has been studied from a uniform data perspective, but, but at the very least, <laughs> starting in the 60s. Um, and that as that crime kept ticking up and up and up, there was a concurrent... I would say erosion of social institutions as well. You know, we had things that like the due process revolution in the Supreme Court, which, you know, as a as a liberty minded individual, anything that enshrines due process protections, I tend to support. But at, like anything that we look at as a pendulum, it can swing too far. And they saw the rule of law as as it was seen thusly, basically being eroded from that. And not only that, but our philosophy on criminology at the point, starting all the way back in 1925, the Chicago School, really positing this, what I talked about earlier, this ecological view of what criminal offending is, that I offend not because of a personal moral failing, which let's never, ever forget that a bad decision is an, an internal bad decision. It is not a bad decision I'm making for you or you're making for me. It looked at these environmental factors. Well, that environmental factor approach basically overtook all of criminology, and it became this, I, I like to use the term, I've been told it's hyperbole in the past, but I call criminology as it's developed into a, basically it's proto-Marxist philosophy, because all it is is conflict between the offenders and the people that jail them with the, the I would say, the, the preponderance of legitimacy being on the side of the offenders, which just made absolutely no sense to me. Sure, and in, and in typical Marxist fashion, stripping away the agency of individuals. And, 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 we, and it's ironic when you think about that. Of course, there's much that's ironic about Marxism. But if you've got a good shtick, might as well stick to it, right? That's, that's right. <laughs> so, so anyway, at, while all that was happening concurrently, we were our public policy toolbox on this was all we basically had in their left was a hammer. All we could do to counter the rising crime rates was to basically elongate sentences, Make sense, you know, criminalize more activity, more marginal activity, and and nobody can be blamed for that because that was the state of our basic public consciousness at the time. And not only that, but it was national. The the, the crime epidemic was national, and it was persistent. So as that went on, and as uh, we sort of looked at incarceration, that's what that hammer was. We looked at incarceration as a default. We basically, crime rose in lockstep with incarceration. Now, you would think that, well, if we keep incarcerating more and more and more people, that we're going to have an appreciable drop in crime. Now, that never, that never actually happened. Let's fast forward to the, the early to mid-1980s um, uh, in the Estelle v. Ruiz decision. So the conditions of Texas's prisons were actually litigated before, uh, were actually litigated. And the name before. of this case again is? Oh, I'm sorry, Estelle v. Ruiz. Okay. And uh, Estelle being the uh, the director, it wasn't TDCJ at the time, but the director of our criminal the justice apparatus. Texas, Texas Department of 
Criminal justice. Criminal justice. Um, and essentially, the holding found that uh, the holding found that Texas's prisons, writ large, were unconstitutional. Now they were unconstitutional because of the building tender system, which is it's a, a very arcane issue that we can go into later, but it, it's not really important to this discussion. Uh, it was unconstitutional for uh, capacity issues, and so our way of getting out of that was to abolish a lot of the building tender and parts of the trustee system but then also to just build more facilities so we weren't so over capacity. So, you know, we're, we're not, we're going to, uh, you know, instead, if we look at uh, capacity being number of prisoners for facility, we're gonna increase the denominator of that. And so through the, through the late 80s, early 90s, we just went on a, a prison building binge to accommodate the capacity needs for our law as it existed. And so we actually built, through the administrations of Ann Richards and George W. Bush, uh, about 100,000 beds. That is an awful lot of beds. And keep in mind, each facility, anywhere from 700 to three to 4,000, you know, and these are- It's a lot of prisons. Exactly. These are massive capital investments. And I need to say at this point, building prisons is not per se wrong or sure. evil. We, in fact, in fact uh, estimates by uh, econometricists on this particular question, is building prisons good, say- well, you hit a point of diminishing returns, but if you look at the crime drop that happened after this general period, at least 20% of it's attributable just to building more prisons, just to incapacitation. The only problem is once we hit that point, we just kept on going. Right. And so, so we, we hit the sweet spot, but then overcorrected. Exactly, exactly. That, that pendulum just kept, just kept yeah. swinging. Um, and so we reached the point in 2005 where basically we don't have, you know, there's no room left. Uh, we are at a point where building new prisons has become not only a issue of the public fisc being able to cover it, it's becoming a procurement issue when it comes to getting the cement to actually pour, the, you know, to build these facilities. That's a real sidewalk level problem. Pardon the pun. <laughs> exactly, though. But I mean, what a great guest you laughed. Hey, I, I, you're not doing anything in this job if you're not having fun, right? That's exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it became a procurement issue. And so in 2005, and you know, this story has been heard by at least the folks at this table and you know, many of the folks who follow conservative criminal justice in Texas, that's when Jerry Madden was made the corrections chairman and Tom Craddock. So a member of our legislature, exactly. Jerry uh, Madden. Yeah, Jerry Madden uh, out of, uh, out of uh, Collin County was made, a, uh, was made the corrections chair. Now, the way Jerry describes it in his, in his magnanimous uh, way is he thought, oh, what a great opportunity. What have I done to deserve this? <laughs> Interpret that how you will. But as he was brought in to uh, meet with uh, Speaker Craddock, Speaker Craddock told him, Jerry, you're the correction chair. Only have uh, one, uh, only have one uh, directive for you. Don't build new prisons. They cost too much. So now, now keep in mind, this is with our population, our prison population just growing in lockstep since, you know, basically the 70s. And this just... To, so I can track this story. This is 2005. This is 2005. Okay. And so Jerry, being an engineer coming from West Point, looked at things in an inputs and outputs way. He saw this is what is driving our prison population. This is the element of the law that's driving it. This is the element of pretrial supervision. This is the element of uh, basically uh, post-adjudication supervision, probation, and parole revocation that are driving it. And we have all these people going into prison or going back that, quote unquote, we're mad at, but we're not necessarily afraid of. These folks that won't actually present a harm to society and can be monitored equally as safely in society 
for much for uh, much more efficiently, we'll say, much for, for much less cost to the, uh, the public coffers. And he and uh, Senator John Whitmire, who is the Senate Criminal Justice Committee chair, uh, fashioned a package of what's now known as justice reinvestment. Now, the 2005 approach was, was the first attempt at it. There were some rough edges around it, and eventually Governor Perry vetoed that. Now, between then and 2007, and Governor Perry vetoed it in his veto message, there were certain there were certain concessions in the bill that were unpa unpalatable to him, and I, I don't think it would. It's unfair to him to say that um, that was something that we tend to agree with in, in hindsight. Sure, and I'll, I'll interject here, especially for our listeners who live outside Texas, that the reason this history of criminal justice reform in Texas is important to them is because this is where this effort was born. And, and of course, they can insert our typical Texas bravado, which, of course, that makes sense. But this is really important because some version of this story gets replicated in dozens of other states, right? Yes, Kevin. It ain't true if it's uh, it ain't bragging if it's true, is it? That's right. So we're but, but again, we're back to two thousand seven. Yeah. So in two so in between two thousand five and two thousand seven, after the veto, in between that time, the prison population, which again, keep in mind, we're up around one hundred seventy thousand beds, all full right now, at at, at this time in two thousand seven, that population went up two percent. That doesn't seem like that much, but we're talking two percent over that many people in eighteen months. And so it really basically heralded almost this crisis condition in 2007. We had to do something different. And that's when they, you know, during that whole interim, uh, Mark Levin of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Ani Inez Correa of the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, and other stakeholders really worked with Chairman Madden, Chairman Whitmire, and really sanded down some of the rough edges some people had with that general reinvestment strategy. It went through in 2007. And it, and it passed in 2007. Now, shortly thereafter, the prison population started tapering off, and then it started plummeting. You know, just fast forwarding to today, if we actually look at where we are in terms of prisons, the state of, since this day, the state uh, of Texas has, has millions more people. And we attract a lot of young people. And anyone that's ever met a young person before in their life will know that tends to be the more crime-prone population. But even with that, even with our population ostensibly coming more criminogenic on aggregate, we are actually having less people in our facilities because of the way that we've changed this policy. We've actually been able to close eight prisons, about 7,500 prison beds worth. And that, seemed like, that might seem like a, a, you know, small potatoes, but that is about, you know, these are you know, tens of millions of dollars per facility. And so these are massive public savings. And after a while, they add up. Sure. Thank you for that explanation. So the, the skeptic at this point would say, well, surely crime rates skyrocketed as the prison population was plummeting. Yeah. And that's actually the best part of this, because had that, had that actually happened, this entire reform effort would be invalidated. Luckily, that, that is not what happened. Both violent and property crimes have been uh, decreasing pretty steadily since then. Now, I mean, it's, it's tough to draw a causal relationship there because we've actually worked on mostly, uh, you know, nonviolent offenses, property crimes, drug crimes. And those are the, if we look at our prison composition, those are the populations that have come down a lot since, since these reforms started. In fact, violent criminals, we actually have more violent criminals in prison now than we did in 2007, even though we have far less beds and far less people in prison, but because we have the capacity to stock them. 
you know, we were letting out some dubious criminals on probation and parole beforehand. Now, surprise, we'd see them again, and that would contribute to the population issue. But now we actually have the space to house them for the time needed. And then again, seeing our earlier conversation, when we have them on hand, we know better what works in reducing recidivism. Now, just because somebody gets programming, does that mean that they're automatically going to be you know, a rehabilitated citizen? Not at all. That's another problem of the, the human condition, if you will. But at the very least, we're doing a better, more effective job in allowing that opportunity, that pathway out for the folks that physically move that for themselves. Sure. So this success story in Texas got transferred to some degree or another to many other states. So, so tell us kind of the scope of that, the number of states, and then where we want to go thereafter is to get into some of the specifics, sort of like the reentry program, of different components of criminal justice reform. Well, certainly. So this is, uh, it's important now to actually talk about right on crime as opposed to a philosophy, but with you know, capital letters as a right. proper noun. Uh, right on crime actually started in and of itself in 2010. In years, uh, you know, basically 2007 to 2009, a lot of other conservative states were looking at Texas and going, wow, this is, this is a fantastic reform package. The results are undeniable. What can we do to do that as well? And they would reach out to folks like Mark Levin and ask, oh, please come and testify before our legislature and let us know how we can replicate this or at least a model that approximates the layout of our state. And Mark was like, oh, I'd be happy to go. Now, the problem was when he got to these legislatures, they were like, who's the Texas Public Policy Foundation? You know, I mean, we have, we have, other, group, we have other free market think tanks in our uh, state. Why aren't we talking to them or why aren't they doing this? You know? And so what we realized there was that the thrust for conservative criminal justice reform wasn't a Texas-specific thing. It was a conservative-specific thing. So we broadened it out to basically include some conservative luminaries who have been espousing this general message from, from long before. So folks like Grover Norquist, like Newt Gingrich, you know, our signatory list now is over 90 people, folks like Governor Perry, as we mentioned before. Governor Perry, who vetoed that, that first bill in 2005, is now a person who's you know, signed up to, to basically espouse the gospel of, criminal justice, of conservative criminal justice reform. And so having that... I would say non-geographic specific, but ideology specific individual supporting that, the conservative luminaries, it really increased the, the imprimatur of conservatism upon the reform. So one of the first states that we were involved in post-Texas was Georgia. And with Speaker Gingrich on the, on the signatory list, you know, that is a lot of credibility on this issue in Georgia. And actually, Georgia... Unfortunately, if I, if I say it here on this podcast, it's now public information. Georgia's reforms actually, out, you know, in 2010, 2011, actually passed Texas's reform. Now, I would say that we've caught up sub subsequently, but uh, not, not to be outdone. It's good to have competition. I exactly, exactly. So long as the, uh, the, the path is pointing in the right way. That's right. Um, but yeah, they were able to uh, enact a very... Uh, I would say a more aggressive uh, reform package, and they had the same results as far as both reducing incarceration sh safely because their crime rate went down in lockstep. And you know, from there, we just have basically really evaluated what are we doing in the states to the point that now we actually have six state-specific directors covering eight states between them, in which we actually have boots on the ground experience in these states to kind of replicate the philosophy of the Texas model. In, in other states, mostly conservative states, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, some it's a little like swimming upstream in states like California. Um, but in the conservative states, this model and this idea and the idea of safely reducing prison populations really resonates both in terms of fiscal responsibility and, as you talked about earlier, the human capital element. Sure. So there are a number of specific reform initiatives as part of this much larger right on crime project. And one of them is reforming civil asset forfeiture. It's a phrase that our listeners might see in the news, and I'm sure several of them pay attention to it. but. It's one that will, in my estimation, will, will only become a bigger public interest, bigger public controversy, if you will. Why don't you, because you're one of the experts on this, explain to us what civil asset forfeiture is and what, how we can reform that, why it needs to be reformed. Certainly. So the, the elevator uh, explanation on what civil asset forfeiture is, it is when the, gov the government takes property, and when I say takes, I mean takes ownership of, not takes possession of, but takes ownership of, an item of property without a criminal conviction of the of the property's owner. Now that can come through many different ways. That can come through it being alleged to be involved in a crime, even if no charges are ever filed. It could be because the property was actually used in a crime, even though against and contrary to the owner's uh, wishes and interests. Um, but either way, at the end of the day, the actual the way the legal fiction is set up is that this is an what's known as an in rem proceeding, meaning that the property itself is guilty of the crime. So in other words, it's not your car that, or it's not you that has you know, traffic drugs, it's your car that has traffic drugs. And therefore, you are subject to the complete uh, protections of the Constitution, specifically in the Bill of Rights, Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendment, protections of the Constitution. Your car is not, you know, the, the, the Constitution is very silent on automobiles. Um, so basically, the action being against a property moves it over into a civil standard. And so the civil standard basically is a 51% standard. We're like, eh, yeah, I, I could see that being the case. Boom, right there, that's the threshold. Oftentimes, you don't get representation. You're certainly not provided representation to defend your property rights. Now, the biggest thing, especially with uh, the conservative folk, when they hear about this, they say, there's no way that actually happens. But it does. You know, in Texas, we're talking about our forfeiture thresholds anywhere between 20, you know, 25, $25 to $35 million a year worth of property. Now, some of that is criminal forfeiture. Some of that is taken off folks who have acquired it illegally, are using it for illegal ends, whatever the case may be. We have absolutely no problem with that. In fact, that that offers a quicker uh, avenue through than general appropriation if a police department has forfeited a, a sizable amount and then needs to redeploy that to continue to fight that particular crime. That makes perfect sense. The problem is, is when we have these more dubious claims and that goes through the civil process. And in that civil process, the bare bones of criminal procedural standards are not even observed. You know, then it becomes an issue of legitimacy. And so under that issue of legitimacy, it's really hard to say that this is rightfully an ownership interest transferring to the state, even if charges are never even filed. Sure. So to put sort of a fine point on this, there are many abuses of in civil asset forfeiture can you think of one or two of the most abusive examples so that our listeners understand what a problem this is? Certainly. Well, I mean, if we go back to before 2011, there were this horror story after horror story in Texas. There were what were known as roadside uh, seizures. And this was, this was actually called highway robbery um, by many of the commentators at the time, in which somebody was basically given a form saying, sign over your property interest in whatever the property may be, or you're going to jail right now. And if it's a interest in a car, 
and your kids are in that car, well, you're going to jail and those kids are going to CPS, which is just horrendous. Foster care agency. Exactly, which is which is barbaric. Um, now, there was some limited reforms. And, uh, and also, I'd have to say what that money gets spent on was fairly unlimited at the time, too. Trips to Hawaii, margarita machines. We've all we've all heard these stories. You, you found some abusive examples. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. And now look, this is not an indictment on margaritas in any way, shape, or form. But this is what what this money was able to be spent on, not necessarily as we want it to be spent on law enforcement purposes. Now, some limited reform went through in 2007 after after there were suits against individual departments that were abusing this. What that what that did was basically say, okay, no more roads, no more roadside uh, forfeitures. Um, and you can only spend it on, you know, X, Y, and Z. Of course, X, Y, and Z happens to be very broad. It has to be anything even tangentially um, considered part of, of a law enforcement purpose, including not limited to carpeting the actual headquarters of a district attorney's office. Um, so there still is room to be made uh, just because the roadside uh, seizures w uh, was ameliorated doesn't mean that we still don't have abusive practice, that the odds are still not stacked against innocent property owners in this uh, in this case. Um, but that's something we've been working on here. Uh, I actually think on the other side, on what that money can be spent on, I think that needs some reform too. If you look at the individual, uh, I, I would say, uh, check registers coming out of these Chapter 59 accounts, which are the special accounts for civil forfeiture monies, uh, I'm sorry, for forfeiture monies. If you look at some of the expenditures coming out of there, there are some that are dubiously in pursuit of law enforcement purposes, I'd say. Um, but at the end of the day, the what it's spent on, while sometimes icky-seeming, is not nearly as bad as how that actual pot gets filled. Sure. And again, criminals, put that money right in the pot. We're talking about innocent property owners or someone to, who has not been proven to a criminal standard or with the criminal protections that we afford, you know, actual people that have done the wrong, then I don't think that's a legitimate... Uh, forfeiture of that property. Sure. Well, thanks for that explanation. So as we begin to wrap up here, we've talked about the present. We've talked about the past. What does the future hold for criminal justice reform? And in particular, people living in other states, people thinking about federal action. What are the horizons? What's going to happen in the next year? What's going to happen 10 years from now? Well, just like every other element of public policy, there is a very strong emphasis on getting the federal government out of the out of the state work, and you know, ever going back to uh, 1994, the uh, the the crime bill of 94, um, a lot of that incentivizes practices that are now seen as problem, you know, as trouble today. For example, a lot of federal money going to the states through the Department of Justice is based on the 85% rule. Now, basic 85% rule simply says you need to have a state sentencing scheme where most people are going to serve 85% of their sentence, which also is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's 85% of their sentence behind bars, which really, pardon the pun, handcuffs uh, the ability for parole boards and policymakers to really respond to any sort of incentive-driven opportunities such as we talked about with the First Step Act. Things like that are, that's not on the states, that's federal dictate, and that manifests itself as mandatory minimums, which everybody likes to uh, cast aspersions on. When the fact is, it's not mandatory minimums simply because they want to have the existence of these structures. It's mandatory minimums to be federally compliant. And, all, and it doesn't give flexibility to the states. Another thing is, and I would say that a lot of money goes from the federal government to the states to study their criminal justice systems. 
but not to actually reform it. Some of it does. Some of it in that justice reinvestment initiative uh, talk that, or, uh, issue that we talked about before, that actually incentivizes folks to kind of replicate the Texas style model. However, you pay money to states saying, just study what you're doing. Here, here's some money to do it. And that doesn't necessarily have the, the you know, again, we're against, you know, strings attached federalism here, but this is money that shouldn't be going down to the uh, local state governments to begin with. That should be, that should remain in the states and free of uh, federal taxation. Uh, future beyond that is basically having a distinct enough federal and state criminal justice system. You know, Attorney General Ed Meese always used to say, I don't know why we have a federal carjacking statute when carjacking is a illegal violent crime in every single state in the union. So why are we actually replicating that? And then when it comes to a matter of trans-state criminal uh, activity or international criminal activity, yeah, there's going to be special statutes needed for that. But basically, every state needs to stand up on its own, criminalize the behavior that they seem to, that they want to criminalize. And if they want to under-criminalize some things and they basically pay the consequences for that, that's, that's the downside of the laboratories of democracy for them. But at the end of the day, the state's own agency with a small a needs to be what's driving the criminal justice policy. And that's going to look like a reduced federal footprint, which actually the First Step Act plays into as well. Sure. Yeah. Wonderful job of, of connecting those dots for our listeners. So thank you for your explanation about everything criminal justice reform. We actually could spend a few hours talking about it. It's, it's really important. And I think conservatives and everyone should care because ultimately what we're dealing about dealing with is the human person, the relationship of the human person with our government. And as our recent guest on this podcast, Jonah Goldberg, said, we really need to be paying attention to the mediating nature of civil institutions. And whether those are, are prisons, and, and they are mediating institutions in a unique way, or schools, or the private providers that are playing a really important role in reentry, this is part of what particularly conservatives, limited government types, should really be thinking about because it's responsible government. And it's responsible government with the secondary benefit of saving money. The primary benefit is honoring the dignity of the human person. And when we can put a human face on our policies, I think conservatives and limited government, libertarian, free market types are at our best. I want to conclude by asking you a question about yourself. Everyone has a path into public policy work. Tell us yours. Uh, uh, circuitous. <laughs> that, no. That's pretty common. <laughs> so, so I, um, so I started uh, in in criminal. I started in criminal justice as an academic discipline, uh, way back. I'm not going to give you a date, but let's just say an undergraduate. Um, I actually was a secondary education major uh, before I even got into this field. Um, I did several. We had uh, several practicums that were required uh, for at Bowling Green State University for us to. Uh, advanced through that and through some of it I really worked with underprivileged individuals kids who were in a bad bad state I'm their environment was not one conducive to positive development you know they had negative influences on their life again that doesn't necessarily as we talked earlier ameliorate any sort of criminal behaving in the future but what it does do is they don't have any positive role models their institution of the family was non-existent and if it was existent, it could be existent in a toxic way. And I thought th the education paradigm of addressing this is more education, more education, more education. And the way we see that as it manifests itself in public policy debates is more money for education. Sure. And so I ended up changing majors uh, to cr uh, criminal justice slash criminology. 
And I started progressing through the, the normal academic discipline, started my uh, master's at the University of Cincinnati, really enjoyed it as an academic pursuit, and, and then went into the PhD. Now, my focus there was basically in, in policy, and then we needed also a sub-focus, and mine was in corrections. So this happened to be a, a perfect nexus of, here's our corrections policy, and I noticed that theory, or at least the, the prevailing orthodox theories of the time, the ecological theories we discussed, not only are those not reflected at all in anything that we're actually doing, they're actually anathema to what we're trying to do in the facility to be successful. You know, we know what predicts criminal behavior. It's none of these ecological theories. And so what can we do to improve our public policy to, to get better public safety outcomes and to do so more efficiently? Now, that's actually not the most orthodox view in academia right now. And so I see The understatement of the day. <laughs> yes. I, again, in the uh, pursuit of diplomacy. Um, and, and so I was looking outside of academia into policy work like, I can't see this segment of academia, which again, I said was proto-Marxist prior to, I can't see that fixing itself because it is, so, it is so divorced from reality that I can't see any of the policy prescriptions coming out of there being effective at all unless appropriated by conservative policymakers who actually have moral authority on this. Because if we look at the 60s during that time, again, the leftist policy prescription was, well, we're, we're just locking up people based on race, so we'll just lock up less people. Well, there's a crime rate, there's a crime increase going on right now. Well, I better lock up even less people then. And it just became the self-defeating narrative that abandoned all credibility on the topic. And so when this uh, job came open here, I basically, <laughs> I jumped at the opportunity. I was really glad that uh, Mark Levin and, and Chuck DeVore saw, uh, you know, saw value in what I was able to bring to the institution. And you guys haven't been able to get me out the door since. You're making too much of an impact. <laughs> Dr. Derek Cohen, I can't think of a better person to be doing the job you're doing. And I mean that. And one of the best parts of public policy work is that, and I say this as a historian, most Americans will never know the importance of the work behind the scenes that goes into legislation that gets passed, that helps to persuade a, a president that this is not just a good idea, but a priority in which he will invest his own political capital. And you would be the last person to take any credit in that, but I will give you some because you deserve it. And we thank you very much for spending some of your precious time with us today. My pleasure, Kevin. You bet. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.